When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hi, this is Ryan Fraser. This is Troy Daly. This is Gus Boyet. This is Don Hutchison. This is Jürgen Klopp, and you're listening to The Big Interview with Graham Hunter. Thank you, Jürgen. I traveled to all these interviews from Barcelona, and our socios, our beloved members, keep us on the road. This independent podcast would not happen without them. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to become a socio, to become one of our members, and get an extra big interview every month, plus loads of bonus content. So go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Graham Hunter, and we'll bring you joy. Welcome back to yet another big interview, creeping ever more closely to our centenary interview. How did we manage that? Today, this time, my guest is Pat Bonner, Packy Bonner to his friends. Republic of Ireland goalkeeping legend. Packy talks and analyses football just as well as he used to keep goal. And in this first half of our interview, you're going to hear reflections on Donegal. If you've ever been to Ireland or heard about Donegal, you'll know that it's a specific kind of lifestyle there. It breeds an identifiably different human being. Packy is brilliant talking about giving out in Ireland, talking about how to keep your feet on the ground and what happens to you if you don't. Toughness, the way of life conditioned this man. He's also very good on the art of saving penalties. And did you know, yes, it's Aberdeen time again, how a mighty dandy's Scottish Cup win in 1990 inspired the greatest moment of Packy Bonner's career at Italia 90, 30 years ago now. That's impossible to believe. And maybe the dandies had a hand in one of Ireland's great sporting moments. Tune in, tell people about it, because Patrick Bonner, native of Donegal, is terrific in this big interview. So this is me here, Graham Hunter, saying welcome to everybody who's either coming back to the big interview or has been a fan since we started this long-running series um, some four seasons ago. Today, I'm honoured to to be talking to somebody who, who played uh, a small part in my uh, in my junior career, uh, saving my life, namely, um, but who not only excelled on the pitch. He's somebody who has gone on to become an educator, somebody who's developing the game, which gives us all a living, but which also um, grasps our heart and our soul and doesn't let go. All of you who listen to the big interview, I know, will know the name of Pat Bonner, uh, Donegal man, uh, Packy to close friends. Uh, Mr. Packy Bonner, first of all, um, welcome, 
not physically, but virtually to, to Barcelona, where I am. And welcome to the big interview. I'm just going to put my glasses on, Graham, so I can see you in Barcelona because <laughs> you're so far away and I'm here in Glasgow and I'm delighted to be on your on your program. Uh, really, really uh, good to talk to you again, Graham, because it's been a while and we bump into each other along the way at the odd time. As a young Donegal man, uh, first of all, just so that we, we, we set the scene for any of our younger listeners, uh, Pat, you, you're a Celtic legend, an Ireland legend, goalkeeper by trade, but born in a part of Ireland that's called Donegal. And Donegal, for whatever reason, and I probably want you to explain it rather than me to guess at it, seems to be a place that breeds men and women of a certain character. There is a, there is a Donegal man. What is it and are you one? That's a good question. Um, I think when you come from a part of Donegal where I come from, which is a way out in the northwest looking out onto the Atlantic uh, Ocean. And I think the next bit, I think there's a beautiful island called Armour Island where we look out onto And then after that, it's America. So it's a rugged part of the world, but a beautiful part and a a place where I was brought up in with with my family for probably about 18 to 20 years. Um, And and then I left to come to Glasgow. But I don't know what it was. Um, I have a twin brother, Dennis, also, who played uh, football for the League of Ireland. Not not a goalkeeper, by the way, a centre-half. Uh, but, um, you know, growing up, we were out in the country. We had to work hard. So I'm talking probably here about values that was given to us when we were young. You know, hard work was is something that's probably in the Scots and in the Irish and so on anyway. But I think there's also things like uh, resilience. Um, you know, we had to hang in there. I had to go away from home when I was 18. Probably kids now are going away from home, football terms, probably when they're 15, 16 years old. But 18 then was probably equivalent to that then. Leaving a, a country background, going into into a city, going into a huge club like Celtic, leaving my family, big family, there was 10 of us in the house, my brother, all my friends, and then going into a city environment. That was really... But I had to stick in there. And it was probably ingrained into me when I was young. You know, we were doing work around with my dad and so on, so with resilience. The other thing probably was respect, you know, respecting people. We were fa- Family in Donegal is very, very important. Um, you know, we know people from about 20 miles around. And, you know, even when my mum and dad died, there was thousands of people coming to the house, the old wake in Donegal, because everybody knew each other. The door was always open, people in and out. But you respected people along the way. And that respect, I think, is, is, is part of my upbringing too. So, so there was values there that was given to me from my dad, my mum, you know, even going into a city life, you know, my dad and I said, don't you get carried away with yourself now, you know, you, you, and I, when I went to, to, to Glasgow first, I stayed with uh, an aunt, an uncle, they moved back to Donegal, then I went down to another aunt and uncle before I bought my first house and I was in the first team at that time. So those were things that, that were very important to my mum and dad too, that I was in the right environment and I was looking after myself, even though I had to go away on my own, if that makes sense to you. So all them things is created. And Donegal people had to, most of them, a lot of people had to travel. They had to travel for jobs. They had to go to Scotland. They had to go to America. They had to go to Dublin. They had to go away. And it's been in our history all our lives. So travel and, you know, people talk about the economic recession and different things that hit part of Ireland during different times and people Donegal people always had to travel and the funny thing about Donegal people you know when we're living together at, at home and that we kind of talk about each other uh, we give out about each other but see when we go away by God 
we are actually very, very close. We're very clannish. We look after each other. And that other part of it, looking after people, has always been part of me also. There's three, Pat, before we leave Donegal, there's three things. One of which has just come out. I have to, one of my all-time favourite expressions, and I'm not Irish, but I've spent a lot of time in your country. Just for the world audience, Pat, giving out. You're now our walking dictionary. Try and give us, not just a dictionary definition, give us a feel for what giving out is, because it's in the Irish blood. Well, the one thing is, you don't get carried away with yourself. And if you did get carried away with it, people say, do be giving out about you, do would be saying, that fella's getting carried away with himself. You're, you're, you're above your station, if that means. So it's a kind of talking almost and saying, listen, we need to bring this person down to earth a wee bit, if that makes sense. Down that, take, take him back down to where he grew up. He grew up in Donegal, so he's not somebody like Graham Hunter that's living out in Barcelona in Spain. <laughs> this is a record with about four and a half minutes in now, and I've just been given out to. My mother also had a great expression. Uh, you know, uh, even during the good times, she said, "Is are getting carried away with yourselves. Is are getting carried away with yourselves. And it was always a term to say, listen, let's get back to basics here. Let's get back to what, 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 what we really are. The other thing I, I want to say about Donegal from my pr- perspective, it's home. I have this argument with my wife a lot because I live in Glasgow. I've been in Glasgow 40 years, over 40 years, and I left home to come over to Celtic when I was 18. So that's, that's a, I was only there 20 years living. But home is home. And we have this, where is home? Home for me has always been Donegal. And it's something also that I, I say to people, see if things go, go horribly wrong for you. See if things go, you can always go home. And it's there, and the welcome, the welcome is always there for you. And that's that's very important to us. We've had one Irish goalkeeper um, on this series before. Plenty of Irish men. And that keeper, you won't be surprised to know, is Shea Given. And one of the things that Shea talked about amongst an armed raid on the Ireland team hotel, uh, which was one of the funniest stories I've ever heard, he talked about um, something that I experienced, which is grubbing for potatoes um, in the winter in October. And the tatty picking holidays, but but grubbing for these potatoes as the tractor would spill them up, and there'd be the big boxes to fill and little plastic um, baskets to 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 take and fill it. And you're down on your hands and knees, and even when you're a youngster and as lithe as a yoga yoga meister, you'll hurt in every joint, you'll hurt in every bone in your body. Your fingers, even with gloves on, will be wet and cold and sore. And she also talked about um, riding around in the back of the cart in his dad's tractor and picking the odd sort of, sort of malformed tatty out and like a sniper picking out people on the road that he didn't like. And, but but, but that, that, I'm not saying necessarily you did tatty picking, but that experience of doing things that were backbreaking or hard, whether it was working the land or, or not or fishing or whatever it was, that that would characterise some of the actions that equate to the type of person and the type of lifestyle that if you could support yourself in Donegal, you had to submit yourself to. Yeah, listen, I, I said about hard work. And I, what I mean about hard work is that, you know, we had to come, we came from school uh, and we did picking pick the spuds or picking the tatties, whatever you want to call them, the potatoes. My dad would have been out all day and he would have been, you know, getting them up and we would go back in the evening and then having to go out for an hour and an hour and a half, two hours, along with doing homework or whatever. And not just me, but my sisters and, and so on, we, we would do that. 
the hay would come different times of the season. We used to have to go and cut turf up and for fuel. Uh, you know, we're talking here now, you know, 50 years ago. Um, so that was that was what Ireland was like. We were probably in a, in a situation where we had to be self-sufficient in many ways because we didn't have what they have nowadays. Uh, so that was always in, in our in our backbone, and Shay was no different. He's younger than me, of course, but he's retired now, and he, and that that was the way of life. And uh, and that you know, if you think about the the connection between Donegal and Scotland, for example, most of my my mum and dad were married in Edinburgh. Uh, they worked over here. My mum worked in hotels, hard work. My dad was out working in fields over here in Scotland. My next door neighbour was over doing the tatty hook, and all of that happened in those days. And that was that was what created a big, big connect between Scotland and Donegal. Uh, lots and lots of it. So we weren't immune to that. And to be honest, and I'm sure Shay said this to you, by doing these tasks, it almost made us into what we are. That that word about resilience, sticking with it, don't give it up. Come on, we we have a job to do here. Let's get on with it. Even if you were homesick, and I I certainly was so homesick when I went to Glasgow, and and I I said it many times, and I've said I say it now once again that I, I cried myself to sleep as an eighteen year old because I was lonely and I was away from people, but I stuck with it. Uh, there was times it was dead simple for me to actually give up and go home and say I can't handle this anymore. But because you went through the process that you mentioned there about the hard work and out in the fields and doing this and doing that, and and so and, and by the way, when I look back on it, it was the most joyful time of my life. You know, we lived right beside the sea. We were out in the boat. We were pulling dulse, which is a seaweed, and selling my dad selling it. We were out doing A, B, and C. But it was fantastic upbringing. You know, and you look back now as an older man, uh, and that, and during this climate we're in at the moment. My word, I would love to be back there doing all some of those things that we did as a young boy. So there was no harm whatsoever in it. And it it really gave me also a physical capacity, you know. And, and, you know, I played not just soccer, but I played Gaelic football, which is a tough game. And any of your viewers that play play a a different sport, i.e. Gaelic football, if they've ever had the chance, that is a tough sport. The man who who we know is Kevin Morden, who played and won All-Irelands with Dublin, and played for Matches United almost nearly back-to-back, uh, and it made him into a, a physical specimen. And that's probably ha- happened to me also. And, and it helped me when I made the transition from being a junior player, goalkeeper, into a professional. Almost within six months I was in the first team. I could handle that because of the physical capacity. See, when you talk about GAA, Pat, um I've you know I've been to GA games. I've been to an All Ireland final. Um, I've not really watched it at the junior level, but I remember, you know, an unusual man, Jerry Armstrong. He's an unusual fella. Made it to um, an All Ireland junior final and, and got sent off because um, is it a cam? Uh, it, it must have been hurling. Uh, so he, is it is it a cannon or is that only in Scotland? The hurley, the hurley. I'm confusing it with shinty. He he loses his temper and breaks it round the back of something and gets banned, whatever. Now, as I watch GA and the GA um, uh, football as well, um, it strikes me that it's such a physical, such an aggressive game that while there are tear ups now and again, one the degree of physical intensity for players who certainly when you're talking about were were full amateurs. And had to do their lifestyle to earn a living, and then getting that kind of nick was was bionic as far as I was concerned. And secondly, um, the, the the lack of 
punch-ups. I mean, nasty vendetta punch-ups for a sport that was intense and mean and no quarter given. I mean, of all the sports I've seen, it's right up there with Aussie rules, for example, about no quarter given at all. It struck me as amazing that there were pure, tempestuous, outright nasty punch-ups and vendettas held. Yeah, well, listen, I played Gaelic football. I played all levels, county, and so did my brother Dennis. Minor, which is under 18, 21, and senior, all within the, the, the when I was 17 years old. I was a big, tall, skinny boy. Played midfield, I could catch the ball. Couldn't do much more else with it, but <laughs> I could catch it. I get up among people. Um, and, and I talked about the physical component, but the, the, what you had to watch in, in Gaelic football was when the ball wasn't there, off the ball, because people were trying to get the one over on you, you know what I mean, trying to sort you out that way. But I remember taking, it was Shea, myself, Ian Hart, uh, Clinton Morrison, um, and there might have been one or two others, and we went to watch a semi-final of an All-Ireland at Crow Park when we, we were gathering up for the international team and we said, let's go to, to watch a GAA game. And we watched Meath and Tyrone, two very, very tough teams, really tough. This was top uh, championship level. And I said to Clinton Morrison before we started, I said, this is a game, this is a tough game. And, you know, coming from London, Clinton was, oh, all right, all right, you know, you know, yeah, for this, they almost dismissed it. And then before, just as the game, you know the way that they follow the band around the pitch and then they break off and then they go into their positions. They don't, there's no offside, so they can go into their positions. So it was a full back against a, a, a centre forward. And the two guys from each team, they were just below us in the stand. We were up behind the goal. And the two of them walked up to each other. And instead of shaking hands, they clashed chests. And you could hear, you could hear the noise of the clash up in the stand and Clinton his eyes were wide open oh my god the game hadn't even started you know so this was this kind of almost like two two uh, deer rutting uh, banging together and, and that was the introduction to Clinton and the, some of the guys to Gaelic football and that was the but there was a respect there among the guys in many ways too you know you've always had it. Brian Mullins is a great friend of mine and, and some of your maybe uh your listeners might know Brian. Brian played and won about nine All-Irelands for Dublin during the time with Kevin Moore. A long hair, great player midfield. But Brian, so I always slag Brian off to say that when Brian started the game, he had to be physically ready. And it wasn't the opposition that used to punch him. It was his, his own players when he would go for a high ball, would give him the dunt to wake him up and get him going. So you had to have some stimulus in Gaelic football to be able to handle yourself out there in that, in that cauldron. We're going to go in a second to 1990. But if I skip ahead two years, I think you'd have been celebrating. The only All-Ireland final I went to was Donegal 18, Dublin 14 in 92. I think when Charlie Redmond missed his penalty. I, I don't know if you bothered watching that one. I was on the hill. I was on the hill and I, and I paid my ticket. Good man. I, myself and my wife was there. We were sitting up in the stand, and, and I must admit, obviously, it was the first All Ireland that uh, that that uh, Donegal won uh, after years of trying, and uh, there was a lot of people up there with tears in their eyes. And then, then of course, Graham, the party afterwards, the Guinness, and everything flows, you know. So, and and the other great thing about Gaelic football, as we know, this different probably than football, soccer, is that. All the fans are almost combined in the stands. They're all set around each other. And there's great banter and, and great fun in that way. Look, 
let, let's then use the time machine and drop back two years because one of the things that we wanted to break down, I think um, because uh, we're on one of the special anniversaries of you making it to the last eight of the World Cup, you're in a tight band of Irishmen who have both had a, a nice feature film made about you in the van, but also made it to the last eight teams in a World Cup, which is a, a really, truly astounding feat for any nation, let alone Ireland. But I think that people don't understand that the build-up to that fantastic save against Timofte was as as long and as checkered as as you'll be able to explain to me that it was. Now, I wasn't in uh, Genoa that night, but I had been at Hamden weeks earlier as an Aberdeen fan cheering Aberdeen to win that day. But then, however many weeks, maybe about eight weeks later, cheering on Ireland and wanting you to beat Romania and eliminate them. And the reason I raise it is that, you know, we've we've spoken before this interview about the concept of starting from what was a really important final for Celtic because of the general European positions and coming in to face this um, this side, this Aberdeen side, the last Aberdeen side to, to lift a Scottish Cup, um, actually, in 1990. Still a very good side. And it's nil nil after ninety minutes, one hundred and twenty minutes. And I'd like you to take us, to, well, first of all, to that moment because you and I were going to paint the arc that will take you from what you learned, what you went through, on that day in Hamden, through the summer, um, through Sardinia to Genoa, where you make that enormous save that allows your group, your team, your squad, and all those fans to go through to a game against Italy, the hosts of the final. So if we go back to Hamden. I'm trying to explain to people that after a really draining, very tight game between two good sides, because Aberdeen was packed full then of more talent than they are now, it was a more equal contest, I would say. Um, if you think about Charlie Nicholas still in Aberdeen's team and, and Jim Bett and McKimmy and McLeish, player of the season, against your side, still jam-packed full of talent, possibly favourites. But pick up the story, Pat, as, as the whistle goes. It, it is hot that day. It's not like um, Croker in 92 everybody's exhausted and Celtic and Aberdeen are about to face penalties bring us into that scenario in the best way you want to yeah to be honest um, when, when we played for when I played for Celtic penalty shootouts was not something that I would have practiced or I would have even contemplated preparing for um, Mainly because, you know, probably, I think it might have been the first penalty shootout, if I'm not mistaken, in the cup final. So, so I, I, really, um, I really don't know if I was any way planned. I don't think even I thought about it, uh, to be perfectly honest. I expected the game to be won during the normal time. Then went into extra time. Even then, I wasn't even contemplating it that well. So I definitely was not prepared at that moment. And, you know, when, when I, the only penalty... Um, when I look at back at it, the only penalty that I was prepared for at that moment was the very first penalty, and it was Jim Bett. Because Jim Bett was the penalty taker of Aberdeen normally uh, at that per- period. And I knew where Jim was putting it. I knew exactly where he was putting it. And he was a good player. He was, he, he was a player that could strike the ball. He, and, he, and he was confident. Uh, and he put it right into the corner on my right-hand side, low down into my... And I dived right and I got right close and it just touched my fingertips going into the net um, after that I didn't have a clue uh, where the penalties were going you had 
Alec McLeish hitting the penalty, Charlie Nicholas, you never knew where Charlie, Charlie had the ability to put it right, left or whatever, um, and so on. And I went the wrong way for every single penalty thereafter. I went to nine penalties. Except McLeish. Except McLeish. McLeish takes it brilliantly. You, 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 you look, you know, from a spectator's point of view, you go left. McLeish lifts it just under where Charlie Nick just says, I'm putting it in that in that tiny square of the net, which he could do all his life. And you trained with him at Celtic, so you knew. So fine. And Charlie's, Charlie's is unstoppable. With Alec McLeish, whether you were prepared or not, you go really close, but he strikes it like a centre-half probably shouldn't be able to strike it. So that, that might have been luck. But of all the others, I see you going one way. And You, you, know, the, you know the worst thing in a penalty shootout, Graham, is that if you keep going the wrong way and you almost as soon as you move and you see the ball go the opposite way you're almost your body your whole body language is down and you just fall to the ground it looks terrible at least if you go the right way you have a chance of saving it you know you keep your eye on the ball you, you do you do all of that so I went the wrong way for okay seven out of nine penalties which is incredible incredible uh, you know then when we move forward to the penalty shoot in Genoa it was a completely different story and of course there is a process around that, but but that was it. Even Brian Irvin, when he when he went up and struck the ball and opened up his foot and put it up, but I was I was gone, you know. And to be honest, so the preparation for that was non-existent. Now, what you've got to think about also is that you know while you knew players and you played against players, like there were, normally you would have one person that took the penalties for teams, and as I described, Jim Bet was at that. The other thing is you didn't have a lot of uh, analysis going on those days. You didn't have video. You didn't go and see and so on and so forth of people striking and you didn't do a lot of preparation. So it was really about you and the person. Uh, and I failed, I've got to say, in psyching out. And, and, and I needed help after that uh, a little bit because I was going in to the World Cup. Uh, the season was finished domestically, but I was going on to a different tournament. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's two things I want to ask out of that. One, prior to shootouts, prior to that shootout, did you quite enjoy the one-on-one aspect of penalties if they had cropped up in a game or not? I, I did, Graham, because I had a decent record with penalties. That was a point in normal circumstances within the game. I remember saving one against Billy Stark for the gym. Uh, you know, different penalties. I, normally, uh, I had a decent, I had a decent enough throughout my career one-to-one on a penalty situation, but that was almost within the game scenario. It wasn't the final. I, I can't even remember that I go into a penalty shootout. Uh, in any other game I really can't remember if there was another moment or game that there was a penalty shootout Uh, but it it was a great learning process for me that's my second question then because a lot of players I think I I imagine maybe not all goalkeepers but you're sore on the day you haven't lifted the cup that hurts it takes a little bit of processing but you've got the G up of a big tournament coming a sterling bunch of guys to go to because they weren't just good players I know several of the people you were working with and that will buoy you that will bring you your optimism your confidence up but it seemed to me that what you did instead you said I needed help you stopped and you got introspective or you got analytical on your own basis and you went okay that's going to be a moment where I change my mentality. Yeah, definitely. I'm I'm a very analytical type person. I used to even goals that I would lose or games that I play, I would come home and I would almost overanalyze them. Uh, you know, even games I played well in, I would I would get into that sort of mode. And I've always been that way, absolutely that way. I used to sit with Tommy Craig uh, during the centenary year and after training, we'd be up on the on the big uh, board with the men and we'd be talking and so on and so forth. And he, uh, so I, I was really into the tactical side, I was into the an- analytical side and so on, and even for my own performance, very much so. But what I, what I did was, I had time to sort of almost relax a little bit after it. Okay, the season's finished. Uh, now I'm into a new tournament. I had to build myself up psychologically and get myself going again. But it wasn't a problem because you were going into a World Cup. You were going to play for Ireland, my word, in, in, in 1990 in Italy, which was an incredible tournament in, in, in Italy. The, the, you could call it the home of soccer in many ways. Um, and I was going in with a group of great guys uh, and we had done so well uh, to, to get there. But the other aspect of it, I was going to room with a guy, Jerry Payton, who was older than me. And you, we didn't have a goalkeeper coach at that point in time. There was no goalkeeper coach. We, we didn't. I was the first goalkeeper coach with Ireland and even with Celtic. And well, apart from Joe Corrigan, he came up part time a little bit, but until 1996. So we didn't have a goalkeeper coach. And a lot of... I think a lot of federations and a lot of countries would be in the same boat at that particular time. Think about it now, it's completely changed. Every team, every level has got a goalkeeper coach, whether it's full-time or part-time. But then, nothing. So Jerry Payton was my go-to man. And Jerry roomed with me and we were we were great buddies. And great, But he was older than me. And he was almost like, I was 30 years old. So Jerry was 30, 34 years old at that point. He's four years older than me. So he was in the mode probably of thinking, what's my next step? I'm a, goal, I'm a coach. 
I'm always a goalkeeper coach, even though I'm going as a goalkeeper to the World Cup. And really, all I had to do is go into the room with Jerry and say, how's it going, Grand? And then always say to him, we lost the cup. And he says, yeah, I watched it. I watched it. And then we, we talked for probably an hour about it. And that was Jerry again. He loved talking football. He loved talking to other people who we talking to. But we sat down and we talked about it. Over the course of the next couple of days and maybe week or so on and so forth, we continued to discuss it. And that's where we came up with a plan. And I'm, I'm going to say this now. It wasn't my plan. It was Jerry's, Jerry's analytical brain also. Me taking in the information. Me working it out from my own perspective. And looking at it and saying... And remember, the teams we were going to go and play against, of course, the, the group stage, there was no penalty, there wouldn't be a penalty. But when it came to the latter stage, we, we played Romania in, the, in, in that game uh, for the penalty shootout. I didn't, apart from Hadji, I didn't know any of the players. And none of us knew the players. There was no, there was no great uh, somebody coming along and, and looking at this team. Okay, we watched a little bit of video and so on, but we didn't really get in any in depth into in, into these players. So what we had to work out was a plan that was going to be almost generic for any team that we played against. So then it was about analysing what I did, looking at the player who was going to take the penalty, looking at his body, how he was how he, he was thinking probably. How he was, um, his manner when he walked up from the halfway line, his position, which was the most important thing, laid the ball down, and where was he going to take up his position? And Jerry and myself agreed that the plan was going to be very much about if he stood very direct to the middle of the goal after laying down the ball, he was going to either blast the ball, hit it with power, or side-footed into the, into the up, up other corner. Um, across me if you know what I mean uh, depending on which foot he was playing with. but if he stood at an acute angle there he was going to put the ball back into the same side he was standing on so if he if he, if he lined the ball up facing you and he took a couple of steps to his left or half a step to his left you expected that to go to your bottom right hand corner yeah the same side that he was standing on so so, so, so that was our plan that was our strategy and then we had to just work out, you know, uh, and for me, I always did a little thing in penalty shoots out, shootouts where I kind of exaggerated. I would go one way to almost exaggerate that that the space was there for him to put it in that side. So I'd go one way to go the opposite way, if you know what I mean, a little step. And then the momentum. And the other thing was timing. And the other thing was keeping your eye on the ball the other thing that really mattered to me at that point in time, when the game was over, I took myself away from the rest of the group, really. There was mayhem going on because nobody knew who was taking penalties and so on and so forth. Very, I knew that Kevin Sheedy was taking the first because Kevin told me, he was sitting on the ground and I says, Kevin, you he says, I'm taking the first. And he says, I'm going to head it right down the middle of the goal. That was he had made up his mind. Think about it psychologically. He had his mind made up sitting on the ground ten minutes before he went up to take that first penalty. And if you look back at the penalties, that's exactly where he put the ball. So you look at that psychological positive thinking from, from Kevin, bang. So I took myself away to the side. I started to kind of almost get my breathing right, stretching. I was on a bit of a high because I had played well enough in the game. 
you know, and made some decent saves from Hadji, who was the real real star of the Romanian team. So I, I was kind of, and it was nil-nil, so I didn't give away a goal in the game. So psychologically, I was better. I had the plan in the back of my pocket, you could say, and then it was about preparing myself psychologically to be right on the button when it when 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 the penalty shootout started. There's three key things I want to ask now at this juncture that I think fit here, Pat. One, when when you've got this plan, do you have to talk to yourself mentally? I'm a great man for talking to myself, just to refocus, to g myself up, because. Maybe you're not a, I don't mean a casino gambling man, but I, I'm a, a man of instincts. I'm quite a Celtic man. I'm quite, and I would have my plan like you did. And then I'd look at somebody and go, I think he's good. Did you have to say to yourself, okay, don't let impressions about a little twist to the shoulder when he's 25 feet away from the ball walking up or how he looks at me or if he talks to the referee or did you have to say, don't let things impinge into my plan, stay with the plan? Or did you allow yourself mentally going, okay, I know the plan, but if but if, if I just smell the air and it feels like he's going to do that, I'm going to go with my instincts. How did you discipline your head? No, no, I, I, I had the plan. I knew exactly what, what, what I was going to do and I was going to stick with it. I would watch the, the, the walk-up from the player, how he picked up the ball and so on. And then for that sort of kind of three or four seconds when he went to the, back to the edge of the box, I focused on the ball. I, I had a deep... I, I used to bless myself and do that kind of stuff too because I kind of believed a, a lot and, and that there's another... somebody else helping me along the way. So I had that little... But I had a deep breath... And uh, I would just, I, I made sure that I would take, it was all about timing. If you went too quick, you were gone. So you had to get the moment absolutely bang on. You also have to keep your eye on the ball because a lot of people almost close their eyes because they have a little bit of movement to do or, or they take their eye off the ball. So you've got to keep your eye on the ball. And the great thing about a penalty shootout is you don't have to catch the ball. You don't have to knock it away to safety. All you've got to do is keep it out of the goal. There's no follow-up. There's nothing. So, so that was a that was a bonus, but I kept myself bang on 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 that ball. So, so vision, timing, plan, and positive thinking. Positive thinking. Not not the other the other great advantage. Sorry, on this Graham was that w- the Irish fans were behind the goal, and it was it was really it was really a, an advantage in many ways because they were almost willing you on. To, to, to do well so you were there you think about it you had this imagine sitting up behind the stand and in that goal and you had all this Irish fans behind you and you are the person on the pitch the actor the guy who's going to to, to make this happen or not uh, and that and I've been in the stand many times and there's nothing you can do about it all you can do all you can do is give good good vibes good vibes and then react when when it happens the other thing I don't know if you if you know this, but uh, I think about after the third penalty, uh, I had to walk. Then after the, each penalty, you had to go down to the side along the fence and sort of kind of go in, into an area where not to interfere with the next penalty. And as I was walking along, I looked in the crowd briefly, and there was one of the guys, one of the guys who I grew up with, a uh, little bit younger, but grew up with from my village back in Ireland. And, and that in itself, I think it was probably the third penalty and I could see him with the fist up and him pumping and come on, you can do it. And it almost gives you another, another energy somewhere. 
Um, and that you just, just have to calm yourself down, but you can also say we're, we're, we're going. And because I was going the right way for every single penalty, was quite incredible. Think about that compared to Hamden, where you were going the wrong way and you're deflating and your, your confidence is going down. While in this way, you're, you're nearly there. And I think it was probably the penalty before the one I saved. I got my hand to it and I, and I was so annoyed that I didn't save it. Lopesco, I'm going to come to. And the two things that I had left to say was, one, I, I might be false on this because you were in great shape at Hamden. But by the time, I don't know if it's the jersey or what, but I've rarely seen you looking leaner, stronger. I don't know if the World Cup training helped. I don't know if, the, if there was a dietitian. I don't know what. But you looked absolutely at your athletic and physical peak that day. Yeah. That particular year uh, was interesting for me because... I had a I had a back injury that was that was affecting me for quite a few years actually. It was a disc operation that I had to have after after the Euros and so on. Um, and you know that was nineteen eighty eight, and I kind of uh, got over all of that, and I was kind of almost in a really good condition, uh, feeling feeling really really good, no no problems physically at all. And when you go to a World Cup and you're almost there for a long period of time, if you know what I mean, and you're in Italy. My word, we used to. We were down in the the, the islands, down in Sicily, and we were down in Sardinia, were you? Sardinia, and it it was fantastic in many ways. So you were kind of really focused on your job. Nothing else mattered. You weren't in the bright lights, or you weren't going back to your family, or okay, you had to sort tickets out and all that stuff. But you're almost focused. Imagine being a top professional, and you have that period of time. Some people find that really difficult. You know, I remember talking to Paul McStay and, and, and talking to the guys who were stuck in up in Genoa, actually. We actually went into their hotel after they left and we went in and over, took over their hotel. But I remember talking to Paul and them afterwards and they were so bored with being there for... F- f- I found it absolutely, completely the opposite. I found this is unbelievable. We're now in a World Cup, we're preparing, we're training every day and maybe it was a group of guys who was what? You know, think about it. Listen, we had... Paul, uh, we had Paul McGrath, we had Kevin Moore, we had uh, Mick McCarthy, we had Ray Houghton, we had John Aldridge, we had Andy Towns, we had these guys all playing top stars down in England. And here's Paddy Boner from the northwest of Donegal, Scotland, playing up there, and now he's mixing what this group, and we are on a journey here. Where else would you want to be? Oh my word! So for me, it was it was quite an incredible period of my life that having that period of time. So I was energetic and, and up for it. And I think up until that penalty shootout, and up until that game, in fact, against Romania, I didn't have much to do in the games. You know, when you we think back to the England games, Sardinia, not a great game. The weather wasn't great. Then we played uh, Egypt, nothing to do. Even against Holland, there was very little. Uh, in, the, in the game, so I hadn't I hadn't contributed until that moment. So this was the moment for me to give something to the team, uh, and that and that all of those positive things were in my brain at that moment in time. So let's let let's fix on the positive thinking because I think again it's a sliding doors thing. In the penultimate penalty, not only do you go the right way, but you get a bigger chunk of your fingertips touching Lopescu's shot now it's struck quite firmly it's not poorly placed but your anticipation the length you throw yourself your timing means that there's a and and instead of going right i'm i'm nearly there 
you 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 you're beating that you're doing a who was Kafur Sami Kafur in uh, in '99 in in the Champions League final when United scored twice. You're beating the turf, and your roar of anger and frustration is audible above celebrating Romanians, the groan of the fans behind you, because you're you're furious. Yet yeah, that that doesn't mess with your head. It doesn't put you off. No, 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 no. It, it actually gives me more motivation. See, and, and mainly because Grim, I was going the right way. And you, if I go the right way, uh, I'm athletic. I can, uh, you know, I can get there. Uh, I, I can make a save. And and that was the moment just before that. that said, oh, that was that. That's a moment gone. But listen, there's another moment coming up. Uh, now, if, if you look at a penalty, to be honest, uh, out of all the penalties hit, Daniel Tomofti's penalty was not a great penalty. It was. It was. Loose, it wasn't great pace, it was a nice height, it was in the right side. It was probably, okay, it was. It might have been close enough to the post, but it was a perfect penalty to save, if you know what I mean. So from that perspective, just give give that moment to me. That The way I was, I would have saved that penalty probably nine times out of ten by going the right way. Uh, maybe some of the other penalties, well struck, Hadji's penalty, really good in the top corner and so on. That you go, but even the, one of the subs that came on, what was Lupo? Was it Lupo? Was it not? I didn't really have a clue on him where he was putting it. Uh, to be honest, it was the one, and I didn't. I went the right way, but I, I, I just didn't have. I wasn't right uh, on that, and that was the only penalty that I said that I wasn't right. The rest of them, I knew exactly where they were going, and uh, to be honest, just. If somebody hits one loose one, you have a chance. You're right, it was um, Dynamo Bucharest legend Danut Lupu. Your memory's very good. But if I sum up the things that you and Jerry worked upon and what you've said in this interview, as you leap, eye on the ball, um, confidence high, you feel you already feel like the system's working. I don't think think you know you've made the save when the ball makes contact with your hands I, I think as you go also going back to the Hamden it's funny what you put into words because you, you took out of my mouth a question I was going to ask a couple of times particularly when, when you went to your right and the ball went the other way you were ha- you were on kind of bended knee yeah absolutely uh, absolutely. Once, once the eye is on the ball and you move and you're going in the right direction, then it's about really keeping that momentum going right to the very moment that you either save it or you don't save it. You get your hand to it or whatever. So so right away, but as soon as you go the wrong way, when your eyes on the ball, you know, you're almost, you're, you, you flop down on the ground because you know that there's no point even going the full distance, uh, if that makes sense to you. While, while if you go the right way, at least give it 100%. And one of the big things, uh, of course, in goalkeeping is that you can almost try to dive square to the path of the ball. You know what I mean? You, you, that's the norm. You, 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 so you take that step. And this is one of the things that was really uh, really annoying for me when I watched. There was, a, there was an incident last, was it last year or the year before, a young goalkeeper from Ireland and uh, and a shootout in the I think it was the under seventeen European Championships, and he took a step out of the line, and he was I think the he saved the penalty but it had to be retaken. He got booked and he was sent off. Right, then he changed the rule after that, that you can now take a step forward, but you always had to take a step forward. 
to make a save. That's the normal situation as a goalkeeper. You don't dive square or flat across your goal. You dive outwards and at right angles to the path of the ball if you can to make the distance shorter but also get momentum to make a touch on the ball. So your step is very, very important to you. And if you watch very, very closely goalkeepers uh, and, and getting into this very analytical stuff, sometimes goalkeepers don't take that step to get distance. They almost dive from a standing position. And even their foot goes back towards the other foot and then they're, they're short on distance. So I trained very much during my old career, even when I went to Celtic with Frank Connor, who was, who was a, an ex-goalkeeper uh, in charge of reserves. And Frank and me used to do a lot of diving and so on. And I perfected that sort of almost uh, momentum by taking that step forward. Thank you for listening to The Big Interview. It's produced by me, which sounds egotistical, but it's also true, Graham Hunter, and Backpage. Our music is by Beer Jacket, who else? Editing by Charlie McGarry. Thank you to our hosts at Acast and our loyal sponsors at Bet365. We're also supported by our socios. Find out how to become a socio, how to support us, at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Here endeth the lesson. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com code program.